excited about that. Um, all right, so let's dive in. We are in uh, the second week of a three-week series on what is easily the most depressing part of Genesis, hence the sermon pumper, all right? And so uh, this is uh, in the middle of where God is really highlighting uh, a lot of the depravity of man and how it has in a lot of ways circled out of control when left unchecked, we get kind of some of the stories that we're reading about right now. And so that's where we are. So just to prepare your hearts for today, all right, uh, this is a tougher uh, message, I think, but I think it's an important message. And so last week, Todd covered uh, the flood uh, and really God's judgment uh, in some ways uh, on the world uh, as they continued in sin and did not seek him. That's a message that's also tough. We don't like necessarily hearing it. We're not used to thinking about those things as a body, but scripture does lay that out all over the place. And so it is important for us to understand uh, that this week we're going to focus on the flip side of the flood and we're going to watch as Noah and his crew kind of land on dry land and what happens from there. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Genesis chapter 8 is where we're going to start. We're also going to do chapter 9 today. If you don't have a Bible, there's some under every second and third chair around you. If you don't own a Bible, please take and keep that. That's our gift to you. We want you to have the word, be able to read it during the week. So we would love for you to keep that. Uh, You can also follow along on your smartphones if you wish. Uh, You could type that link right into your browser or if you have the YouVersion app underneath the tab section, you can click on events, type in the well Austin, you can follow along that way. We say this every week because we mean it. We want your eyes on the word that we're not making this stuff up. We're not trying to be cute. We really think that, man, these are God's words to us. This is how he communicates mainly to us is through the word. And so we want to be submissive to his voice and know what it means to follow him, to love him, to be encouraged by his love for for us, all right? Um, So let's go ahead and dive in. Genesis chapter eight, and we're gonna pick it right up in verse one. It says, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. So just real quick that we're all on the same page. Whenever you see this word remembered, associated with God, it's not like God had some uh, psychological experience, okay? It's not like God was just chilling, you know, in the room, watching TV, are they still on that boat? <laughs> right? Like, like that's, Holy Spirit, can you go take care of that? All right? That's not what was going on. When it says remembered, it actually mentions an action, right? So God made an action. He is doing something uh, about something that he had done before. The reason I highlight that is because you actually see a lot of emotions of God throughout the story that he regretted or he was grieved or it hurt God. You even see things like God's hand moved and things like that. Well, God doesn't have a heart or a hand in the way that we think of it. God isn't grieved in the way that we are. What the author is trying to do is to get us to understand the way that this is impacting God, that God does indeed have emotions. We have emotions, which actually highlights that God himself does feel things in that way, but it's not the same way that we feel. He's above us, separated from us. And so you'll see all these uh, anthropomorphisms, what they're called, how God becomes like a man or like a human so that we can kind of understand him more. Remembered is just another idea of that. And so God is trying to, what you should be encouraged in right away as we jump into our text, literally in verse one, he is trying to sympathize with us. He's trying to interact with us. Hey, this is how I'm feeling. I'm not this distant God that's way off that forgot that Noah was on the water, right? I'm a present God. I I want to be with you. I want you to know that I love you, that I'm interacting in this whole situation. We see that right away in verse one. Let's keep going. Verse 2. 
The foundations of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens were restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month and on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now, real quick, these verses show that God is clearly the one that is orchestrating this, right? This is that uh, this isn't an act of nature per se, but there are all these divine implications. Like, he caused the water to stop pouring. He caused the waters from the ground to, to stop shooting forth. God is acting in this. So it's not like this was just a chance of nature. No, God was in the middle of this trying to interact throughout this whole thing to display his glory. And we see that even here. Verse 5. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. And the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still over the face of the earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. This is a really quick side point, but I do think it's an important point to make, is that the author is actually trying to be very intentional to highlight Noah's care for all of creation, right? Noah is really tendering. He's, he's very caring to all of his creation. The reason I highlight that is because at past and times, Christians have kind of gotten a bad rap as if we don't really care what happens to this earth whatsoever. We're just kind of waiting to the next one, right? So who kind of cares what's going on here? We don't, we don't really have that much responsibility here. We're just, we're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth, man. Right? But that's actually not what you see from the biblical authors, even in a story like this. Noah is tendering. He's caring. God has called us as his people to be stewards of the earth. To be a steward doesn't mean to use it for our own benefit, but rather to serve it, to elevate it, to make it better. When you are a steward over something, you become a servant to it. And that is under God's care. And so Noah here is interacting with that, not caring less about creation, but rather he sticks out his hand to catch the dove. Now you may say, well, what is that? Listen, the fact that the Holy Spirit took enough time to write a whole sentence in a very detailed sentence, like you don't see the waters rescinding, you don't see some of the things that are going on, but he slows down and makes us focus on this one point. The Holy Spirit isn't doing that by mistake. He's trying to show us, look, Noah is caring. It highlights part of Noah's righteousness, which we talked about last week, but also his tender care for creation. I also got an amen out of an animal lover. That's the first time that's ever happened. Let's keep going. Verse 10. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove from the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. 
Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Now notice something really interesting here, okay? In verse 13, it says that all the grounds had dried on the first day of the first month of the 601st year. But in verse 14, Noah and his family are still in the ark. You catch that? If you have your physical Bibles, you can see that, right? Actually, what's going on is there are 56 days that have passed between when the grounds had dried and when Noah is still in the ark and then finally leaving the ark, okay? What is this showing us? Noah is still being obedient to the voice of the Lord. Like this is 56 days later and the earth had dried and you would think that Noah has done everything that God has called him to do, but he's still waiting until God actually physically calls him out of the ark to go on. Noah is trying to still be obedient to the voice of the Lord that he may not disobey God. Noah is a righteous, is an obedient guy. Because if I was on the ark, for like a year with nothing but animals and a couple of family members, the second I saw some dry ground, I'd be like, hey, right? I'd hop off that boat and immediately be on dry ground. But Noah is waiting, he's patient, he's trying to hear from the Lord. I mean, it's been a year, right? And still he's there. And so this points us back to our text last week, Noah is obedient, he listens to God, he is a righteous man, he's trying to follow what God has for him. Noah trusted and obeyed. Let's read these last two verses of this chapter. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains and seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Once again, what do we see in this text? Well, Noah gets off the boat and what's the first thing according to scripture that he does? Builds an altar, right? The first thing that Noah does as he hops off the boat is he builds an altar. Now, once again, I'm not trying to subject myself, but this is how I know that God wouldn't have called me to be Noah because I would have hopped off the boat and ate one of those cows that came off, right? <laughs> Hoping that the other one may be pregnant, okay? Like, man, he's just been there, but instead he's not thinking about housing. He's not thinking about shelter. He's not thinking about food. He gets off and immediately begins to worship God, even though Noah lived through what was easily the most destructive time period on earth. The one person that should have been questioning God and God's justice and God's judgment and what is God doing is Noah, right? Like Noah saw all of this and would have felt the pain. And yet instead he gets off and he worships. Noah is a righteous man. Noah is an obedient man. Noah is a faithful man. And so an easy implication for us is, do we worship God in tough times? Is that our go-to when God delivers us, when he commands something, when he blesses us in some way? Do we build an altar? Do we worship or do we just kind of go on about life and almost forget God? Noah is super, super conscientious of God. He's thinking about him over and over and over again. Once again, what is this text pointing to? Noah's righteousness, right? Like Noah is a, a godly, a faithful man. Let's keep reading into chapter 9, verse 1. 
And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Praise the Lord. But you shall not eat flesh that uh, its life or with its life, that is <clears throat> its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply within it. Now, there are a few things here, but one of the things I want to focus on is the law and order that God now establishes. Before the flood, there was no real law. There was no law of the land. Even in ancient history, as you look at other uh, texts from, from other regions in the world, there wasn't a whole lot of law and order per se. And so people just kind of did almost whatever they wanted to do, kind of whatever like they felt was right. Right. And so we read this even in the biblical account, right? Uh, Cain kills someone and then God kind of protects him. Hey, whoever kills Cain, then vengeance will come on him and it's a protection. But then Lamech comes along, does whatever he wants to do and says, well, if Cain's punishment was sevenfold, mine's 77fold. Like I'm going to kill 77 people if anybody kills me. And so he's saying, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And you see this kind of spiral out of control. Hence, as we get into the story of the flood, there's all this chaos Every intention of the heart is evil from its youth, the scripture says. People are just running wild. And so in some ways, the law God creates begins to curve evil. It's not that the law actually changes our hearts per se, but the fear of punishment actually does curve evil in some ways. And so that's what God begins to establish, this law in order so that the sin won't be running rampant again. He begins to try to put things in order to help us live more effective, more decent lives where we're not running rampant or people around us aren't just doing crazy things where there's protection over his creation. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow that is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. What is this part of the scripture showing us? Who is God making this covenant with? Okay. It's kind of making the covenant with himself, isn't he? Right? He's kind of saying, this is a covenant between me 
and me about you, right? It is my sign to myself about the world around me, right? So God is actually kind of covenanting with himself, which may sound weird, but it's actually a sign of grace for us, and here's why. Every time God makes a covenant with man, for example, Adam and Eve in the garden, God says, hey, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to multiply you, things are going to be great as long as you don't eat of this tree. What does man do? Man breaks his end of the covenant. See, God upholds his end of the covenant. He's wanting to bless. He's wanting to pour out, but man breaks his end. We see it again with Israel and the law. God says, hey, if you follow me, if you do these things, it's a bilateral covenant. And then literally man always breaks his end of the covenant while God tries to upkeep his end. So here, God makes a covenant with himself. Why? Because God doesn't break covenants. He's faithful to his own name. We can trust that God's not going to just randomly change because he is not like man. He cannot lie and he does not shift in his emotions. There's no changing shadow, James puts it, with God. It's not like the sun moves and then God all of a sudden looks differently. God stays the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so God is really making a covenant with himself that all of the world around him would be protected right? But here's what I would argue. None of this stuff, the reason we sped through the first chapter and a half of this is that none of this stuff takes its full effect until we really focus on the last few verses, which will be our focus today, okay? None of it really has its full weight, its full impact until we focus on the last little section because each of the sections we just covered could have been a sermon in and of itself to some extent, right? Like law and order, the importance of justice, like those are good things, Noah's righteousness, the care for creation, our stewardship of the world around us, God making covenants, all those are good, but I don't think that's what this story is trying to highlight. And the reason why is because all of the verbs, once you get into this section, become emphatic. In other words, it's really trying to draw out our intention, or, uh, attention on this section, okay? So far, we have Noah's listening to God. Noah is a righteous man. He's, he's doing what God says. He waits on the boat, even though he could have gotten off until he hears the voice of God. He takes in the dove. He makes sacrifices to God. God is making a covenant. I mean, here we go, the new creation, the, the new beginning. God wiped out all the sin in the world, and then boom, in comes the new creation, right? This reminds us of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 again. In fact, Days one through six in Genesis chapter one are repeated verbatim in what we just read, in case you didn't catch that. The only day that's missing is day four where the sun, moon, and the stars, because they didn't have any effect in the flood, right? But all the other things, the dry land, the animals, the swarming things, the creeping things, the earth, the, all of it is created in perfect order. And now we get to this section. Here comes the new beginning, all right? Chapter nine, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people uh, of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards to cover the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards. They did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew his, what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall, be, or shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, 
and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and all the days of Noah's life were 950 years, and he died. Womp, womp, womp. <laughs> right? Like, man, just when we thought we were heading for a better sermon, okay, we get this. Literally, two sentences can't be spoken of God's covenant with mankind before man again stumbles into this crazy sin. Right? Like, like we get two sentences of peace. It's very similar to Genesis chapter 2. We get all this beauty, all this promise, all this faithfulness, all this fulfillment. And then the very next verse, it says, in comes the serpent. And man gets deceived. And there's all this hostility. No sooner than the blessing that befell men did man showcase who we truly are in our hearts. And we forsook the blessing and created sin again. Right? Noah has a frat party, gets drunk, ends up naked. Right? alone in his tent. Then Ham comes in, does these kind of crazy things, and we don't really know what's going on. We'll get to that in a second. But we see clearly there's drama going on immediately. It's sad because in verse 20, Noah learns how to make wine, which scripture actually says is a gift to man. So Noah is uh, growing in technology. He's, he's understanding how to, how to take the things that God has created him. But like always, human technology is distorted by human depravity. Everything that we kind of make, and that's good, even naturally, we take this and then we begin to use it for unnatural or unhealthy things. And so you think about things like the internet, right? That's good. There's communication. There's connectivity. There's knowledge. But then all of a sudden, the sex trafficking industry is almost quadruple the size that it was just 25 years ago before the internet because this is the main way that people use it. We take this good gift and then we distort it, and all of a sudden, it hurts all of God's creation. Or you can take anything, even good things like money and, and commerce, and we take it and we distort it. The government, we take it and distort it and use it for power. The, the even serving people at times, we take it and we use it for our gain. All things that we create that are good things, we end up distorting and jacking up, right? We mess it up all over the place. Noah had wine. This is great. Noah abused this. This is not great, all right? Furthermore, what happened to Noah the righteous dude? Right? Like, didn't we just laud Noah for like three and a half chapters? This righteous man that listened to God, that did what God was calling him to do. This sounds like a totally different character, doesn't it? Like, this almost sounds like we're talking about somebody completely different. All right? Well, what's this story highlighting for us? Here's one of the things I often hear, and it's true, and I feel it myself. I hear phrases like, Man, if we could just like rid the world of like evil or the evil people, right? Or man, if we could just create this peace, if we could just all get along and and if we can kind of create peace on the earth, etc., what does the story tell us? That doesn't work. Right? God removed the world of all of the evil and kept the most righteous person on earth, and then two sentences after God blesses him, all things begin to unravel again. Like, like that method doesn't work. Or in order for God to have to rid the world of all evil to create true peace on the earth, he would have to rid the world of you and of me. Because there's evil creeping within each one of our hearts. All of our hearts have this sin that is intricately woven into who we are, our very DNAs. We are all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, and there is something creeping within all of us, the depravity of man. Even righteous Noah is susceptible to this. Even the man that listened to God, that obeyed God, he is uh, susceptible. Even more, something people don't usually realize, do you know that Noah has yet to talk in this whole section? There's no talking of Noah 
until chapter 9, verse 25. We get all of this talk, right? But it's God talking, God talking, all these. And the first words that Noah says is what? Cursed. Cursed be Canaan. The first words that he utters are a curse over one of his own sons, Right now, we can assume that Noah probably talked before that, but the fact that the Holy Spirit doesn't draw our attention to it, but he draws our attention to this is showing once again, look, there's something wrong. His first words are negative, right? Man, there's something wrong, not just with Noah, but also with his lineage, his children. What's going on here? Right? And many people ask that. What's going on with this whole ham situation and incident? Okay? There are two main thoughts. There are literally like 40 thoughts. I'll save you the seminary class from all those thoughts. All right? But two of the main thoughts are either one, that ham had improper relations with his dad and he committed sodomy. And so Noah was too drunk to understand what was going on and ham came in and slept with his father. The other thought, which is actually the view that I hold, is that Ham came in and slept with Noah's wife, okay? Now, that seems like an awkward stance there, but there are a ton of sexual euphemisms here. But Ham, as the youngest son, he would not have received any of the inheritance or any of the blessing for that extent. It was Shem and Japheth who were older than him, and then Ham would have not received almost anything. However, if Ham could take the matriarch of the family, then he would put himself in a position to be able to receive the blessing. It would be forced onto him. Ironically, in Leviticus chapter 19, it uses the exact same verbiage that's used here in Genesis, and it tells us that we should not sleep with our mothers. That seems like you don't really have to say that, <laughs> right? Like, like that's, and so what is probably going on is this actually alluding to this situation because though most of us wouldn't do it because we don't think about that, Ham was doing it not because he was desiring his mom, but because he could found this as an opportunity for power, for position that it would then be forced the blessing to become upon him. This probably explains why he ran out and told his brothers, hey, look at this right? Now I'm over you. It also probably explains why Noah did not curse Ham, but he cursed Canaan, Ham's son, whom was born to him from, it looks like, that interaction. He didn't curse Ham's whole line, which he could have. He didn't curse Ham himself. He cursed this one son of Ham, as if to say, hey, that act that you committed, that's an illegitimate act. God is not going to honor that. We do not honor that. And he kind of casts that out. And so then Canaan becomes cursed. He, he doesn't get uh, the promises that he thought he would get from that interaction. There's more here. There's more thoughts about what can happen. Whatever happened, what we do know is that something assuredly inappropriate happened because verse 24 says, when Noah woke up and learned what had been done to him, something was done to him, either physically or around him. It's something inappropriate. It wasn't just Ham saw his dad, right? Like there's more to it than just that. Whatever it is, what the scripture is trying to highlight is that, man, the whole world is already getting messed up again, right? Whether it's with his mom or his dad or something totally different, who knows what's going on? Like we see immediately, oh my gosh, like things are not the way that they are supposed to be. Ham is messed up. Noah's all right, but man, like he's kind of messed up too, right? All the world is all over the place. Abraham Caravella, professor at DTS, he says this, he says, clearly, 
The account at the tail end of Noah's story of Ham's dreadful act is intended to move the reader to an immediate conclusion, not the threat and reality of a flood, not the God-pleasing work of the righteous, not the sin-suppressing efforts of mankind. Nothing would succeed in keeping sin at bay. Once Adam broke the world, the world was broken. And there was nothing that anything that we could do that would begin to fix the problem. Something is clearly wrong, even in the most upright man, Noah, whose scripture tries to loud praises on, even within Noah, there's something all messed up. We feel it, we know it, we know there's something wrong in the world around us. We're not blind to this. Scripture is not uh, afraid to dive into this right away because starting in Genesis chapter three and going up to Genesis chapter 11, that's what it's trying to highlight. There's something wrong, right? And even when it begins to get Better in some ways, we see God's promises. We still see all this messed up stuff happening. We feel it. We know there's something wrong in the world. Scripture tries to highlight that for us. Here's our problem. Because we don't like this topic, we don't think about what's wrong with us and what's wrong with the world around us enough to make us thirsty and hungry for somebody who can save us. When we focus on all the depravity that we feel in our own hearts and we know it and we see it around us, when we see it in the world around us, when we think on those things, it makes us hungry for a savior. It makes us long for somebody that can fix it. And I think one of Satan's tactics is to get us to not think about it whatsoever. So then we forget that we are in deep, deep, deep need of a savior. We forget that there is hope in this world that comes through the person and work of Jesus, we completely ignore that. But scripture doesn't. Scripture is highlighting over and over and over again. Noah appeared to be better. He appeared almost to be a savior. But in reality, Noah was literally just a second Adam, another Adam. In fact, look at this chart real quick. There's Adam, there's Noah. See any similarities there? This chart is filled, for those of you who can't read in the back, God created the world from watery chaos with Adam and Noah. He made both of them in the Imago day. Both of them walked with God. Both of them were to rule the animals. Both of them were to be fruitful and multiply. Both of them were to work the ground. In fact, the author at times throws in things that are totally unnecessary to try to get you to relate Noah to Adam, like work the ground. It says that Noah made wine. It doesn't have to tell you that he worked the ground. You know how wine is made, right? Especially in that culture, which that was what it was focused on. Everyone knew how wine was made, but it threw that phrase in to try to get you to see Noah is really just a second Adam. And so what happened with Noah, right? Noah ends up eating the fruit or drinking the fruit and ends up naked and ashamed. Just like Adam took a bite of the fruit, ended up naked and ashamed. And just like Adam was hiding in a bush, Noah is hiding naked in his tent. And we get the same story all over again. The whole world is recreated. There are new beginnings, and then there's a new fall that looks just like the first fall. Literally, even the same fruit and things are involved to try to show, look, the same thing is happening. Noah is a part of another fall just like Adam was. Adam wasn't our savior, and that's clear. We get that really easily. But then we think, well, well maybe Abel was our savior, but Abel's not a savior. Abel was killed and then didn't raise from the grave, so he can't save us. 
Well, maybe Enoch is our savior. Nope, Enoch got taken away into heaven and we don't know what happened to him. All right, it's not Enoch. Well, maybe Noah, maybe righteous Noah, maybe this person can save us. In fact, Noah did in a way save his family through his faith because since they followed him onto the ark, they were saved from the flood waters around them. Maybe Noah can be a savior. No, Noah's just a second Adam. Noah acts just like he does. Well, well, maybe Shem, maybe, maybe the one who, who Noah poured blessing on, maybe, maybe that will be our Savior. In fact, if you go back to that verse and you notice, uh, Noah doesn't actually bless Shem. He blesses the God of Shem. Do you see it there? It doesn't say, blessed be Shem. It says, blessed be the God of Shem. Well, what does this carry with it? This carries with it the Genesis 3.15 promise that from your womb, from your seed, a Savior will come, the Lord, the God of Israel. In fact, he uses the name Yahweh. He says, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem. Blessed be the covenant relationship, the, the God who wants to save us. And what is he doing? He's prophesying over the son that maybe this son or maybe from this son, a savior would come to crush the head of the certain, to finally rid the world of this sin, to be the answer to all the problem that we feel. And Shem wasn't the answer, was he? And we know that. And that's literally the story of the rest of the Bible. Abraham, maybe. Nope. Liar. Right? Can't fulfill what God's calling him to fulfill. Well, maybe Isaac. He's kind of lame. Maybe, maybe Jacob, nope, swindler and liar. Maybe Joseph, nope, it didn't even come through Joseph's line. And Judah, who it came through, was all messed up. Maybe Moses will deliver us. No, Moses strikes the rock, disobeys God. Maybe Joshua, maybe David, maybe Solomon, maybe the prophets, maybe, maybe, maybe. And there are all these maybes until there's 400 years of silence and we go, we don't know who the Savior is going to be. Now, here's the crazy thing. Within each of those characters mentioned in all the characters of the Bible, we actually see glimpses of what we want our Savior to look like. And Noah was actually a good picture for us in some ways. What we saw is Noah obeyed God, right? Like, like Noah was righteous. He, he listened to the voice of God. You want your Savior to listen to the voice of God, right? Like, like you want him to know what to do and how to do it and to act not on his own accord, but what the father tells him, isn't that what Jesus said about his ministry over and over and over again? I do nothing on my own accord, only what the father tells me. In a lot of ways, what scripture is highlighting is there were a lot of false messiahs before the true messiah came. And that's true in our own life. We end up, just like the people in scripture, looking toward false messiahs to save us. We look for in our jobs, right? Like, if I, if I can just land this job, then all the messed up things, all the pain that I feel like, like that will be healed. And then we get it and it's not enough. Or we get it and it turns on us, right? Or maybe we look to it in relationships. Man, we'll even sin so that we can get a relationship because we think in that relationship, that's where saviorhood is found. I want to be saved. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get that. And then we get it and it's not enough. It's still broken in our hearts or maybe money or maybe comfort or power or control or whatever our idol is, we begin to seek after it and it becomes a false messiah for us. The reason that we keep talking about idols in this section here in Genesis is because all of our hearts, John Calvin says, are like little idol factories that just pump out idol after idol after idol. And in each one of those, we are tempted to look to it to be our savior. Don't deceive yourselves, friends. Your hearts are wicked. The intention of your heart is all messed up. Like, are you better than Noah? And Noah ends up drunk and naked and ashamed. 
All of us have this propensity, if we're honest with ourselves, we have the propensity to trust false messiahs, and every single false messiah ends up drunk and naked in the long run. It ends up leaving us in nothing but shame, okay? Now, question. Was Noah righteous? Was Noah righteous? It's kind of a trick question, right? Some of you are saying yes, some of you are saying no. I see the head shaking. Because chapter six, seven, and eight really try to convince us that Noah's righteous, right? Trying to highlight this. But then what we just covered is like, Noah's kind of all jacked up, right? Like, like what's going on in Noah? Let's read one last text for today. I want to end on this passage here. This is where we'll, we'll focus on toward the end. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. So almost all the way to the end of the Bible, okay? This is written obviously long after Noah was dead and gone. And Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith, some people call it. You have the sports hall of fame, you know, people go into it because they're great. This is a hall of faith. All the greats kind of got into here. And they all got in because of their faith, it says. Here's what it says about Noah, Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, this obviously is written long after Noah, like we just said. And it doesn't just say that Noah was righteous. It said he was an heir of righteousness. Like, he was the father of righteousness. Right? Like, really, Noah? The guy we just read about? Right? Yes. It says he's the father of righteousness. The author of Genesis also wrote about Noah's story long after Noah had died. So the author knew what happened in Genesis 9 while he was writing 6, 7, 8, and yet he tries to laud Noah, to, to build him up. Why? Is Noah righteous? Yes. Because he has faith in a God that can save. And this made Noah righteous. It was by faith that Hebrews text tells us. It was by faith that righteousness was credited to him. In fact, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, it says that Noah was blameless. Was Noah blameless? Yes. Right? I mean, no. We, we see his sin. We can, we can laud blame onto him, right? But Noah was blameless. Is Noah righteous? Are you righteous? Are you blameless? That's the thrust of this text here, okay? Friends, Noah was righteous because he had faith in God. He had faith in a God that can save him. Are you righteous? Do you have faith in Jesus Christ that can save you, that can remove all of the messed up parts inside of us and redirect our hearts and literally reorient our lives to get us focused on the God of the universe. And even though we still mess up, like it wasn't like Noah messed up and then he repented and then he got called righteous. Noah got called righteous and then he messed up. Like we're still going to mess up. We're still going to make mistakes, but God can call us blameless. God can call us righteous if you believe in Jesus. This is crazy, because some of you live with the burden and the guilt of shame and it weighs heavy upon you. I know it because we talk, we have these conversations and you feel like sin is pressing you down and weighing you down. You are righteous if you believe in Jesus. This is crazy. This is a scandalous gospel that we believe. Why? Because what happens is, is that a greater Noah comes 
See, last week we looked at the ark, and in many ways, Jesus is a greater ark. We get into the door. Jesus says, I'm the door into heaven. We go into the door, God closes it, and we are saved from the flood of God's wrath to come. Jesus is also a greater Noah, because like Noah, Jesus obeyed God. He did what God called him to do. And ironically, like Noah, Jesus also ended up naked and ashamed. The difference was, is that Noah was naked and ashamed because of his sin. Jesus became naked and ashamed because of your sin, because of our sin. It says that Jesus hung up naked on the cross. They were, they were uh, uh, shooting dice for his clothes. And he's ashamed and the wrath of God floods onto the person of Jesus. And he begins to consume this sin. Why? 2 Corinthians 5 says that so that you might become the righteousness of God. So that you might be like Noah, righteous, saved. It is by faith that God saves us because the better Noah came to deliver us, the Messiah did come through Shem. It did come through that line, and through that line, we have a Savior that can save us from our sins. Friends, this is a beautiful, wonderful gospel, and that's what all of the scriptures are trying to point us to and trying to fix our eyes to. Listen to me. Look at me. Look at me. You do not have to wrestle with the weight of sin. You don't have to wrestle with that. Jesus paid for it on the cross, friends. I know this is, I know our hearts are so dead to that message. It's, it's so hard to believe. Ask even right now that God would open up your mind to receive that truth. You are forgiven and free through the person and work of Jesus. If you believe in him, if you believe in him, just like Noah trusted in God and that saved Noah, you and I can trust in God and that can save us. To reject him is to, to face our own sin, to be undone by our own destruction and our own wicked ways. We end up dying in the flood of God's wrath because we just don't trust him. We want to be our own gods. But to trust God is to be saved, and the sin, the burden of that is removed from you. And so, friends, here's a really, really easy application from this text today. Super, super, super easy application. You ready for it? If you're writing this down, you can write it down. You can tweet it. This is great. Ready? <laughs> You can trust God. It's the application point. You can trust God. You can trust God. <laughs> like you can sincerely and genuinely trust God. For some of you, God has been calling you to himself for days, for weeks, for months, maybe even for years, and you're afraid, right? And I get it. It is scary walking into what you don't really know right? But he's been calling you to himself. He says, come, follow me. Submit your life to me. Make me your king, Jesus says. Let me get on the throne of your heart. Let, let me direct your ways. And friends, this is the way to salvation. This is the God that we want, though. He empathizes with us. He remembers us. He makes covenants with us. He, he pleads for us. He tries everything. It grieves his heart that he even has to do this. He wants a relationship with you. He wants you. All you have to do is believe in Jesus, trust God. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, what's the ark that God's trying to call you to build? Put it a different way, what ways is he calling you to trust him and you're not? You're trusting yourself, your own works, your own energy, your own efforts, your own whatever it may be. Friends, be like Noah in that way. Trust God, or better yet, be like Christ and trust God. 
And here's the beautiful thing, is that even when you jack it all up and you fail over and over and over again, we have a better Noah. See, when Noah's son jacked it all up, he got cursed by his father. When we jack it all up, God still blesses us through the person and work of Jesus. God is a better Noah that can save us from our sins. You can trust God. And so I would encourage you, even when we're praying here to close, how is he calling you to trust him? Believe in Jesus, the better Noah, who can save us from all of God's wrath and can bring us, save us from our sins and bring us into a relationship with him. Trust God, friends. I love you guys. Let's pray. God, I thank you. Thank you isn't enough, God. Words, words are, they fall so far short. God, you are a good, 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 good God. Well, I thank you. Even in that story, we get a picture of you through Shem and Japheth as they cover up Noah and his nakedness, just like you covered up Adam in the garden. God, you cover us. You protect us. You remove our sin and make us new again. God, thank you for that. God, I pray that we would trust you in that, Jesus, that we would feel the weight of the sin that the scripture's trying to lay out, that there's something wrong in this world and it's the condition of our hearts, God. And Lord, I pray that through that, through understanding that we would come to you as our Savior over and over and over and over again. God, let us never, ever, ever get tired of bowing down at the cross and seeing you as our Savior, Jesus. God, save me. Prone to wander, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Just saying that, that's true. God, here's our heart. Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above, Jesus. God, help us to trust you, Christ. We praise in your very beautiful name. Amen.